comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. We hope you enjoy it. Our next guest is going to be Maxwell Haddad, who talks with us about Rise of the Guardians, of course, and then he shares his own thoughts on uh, Life of Pi and Silver Linings Playbook and a couple other films. Okay, so here we are again. We are now recording with writer for the Racked Focus, uh, Maxwell Haddad. Hello, guys. How's it going? It's going well. Very good. And um, let's see, you've... You listeners have previously heard us talk about several of the movies so far, so we're going to get into another one. This is uh, Rise of the Guardians. It is our job to protect the children of the world. Now we face a threat greater than ever before. What an adorable dream. What's more powerful? It's fear. We need your help. I mean, you have something very special inside. And we can't do it without you. Let's go! Sandy? Sandy? Wake up! <laughs> you can't kill fear, Jack. I'm not afraid of you. We stand together. You take the ones on the left, I'll take the ones on the right? This is the new DreamWorks animated film, which which stars Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, and Jack Frost. They're of course real, and they're they're from real life, so they didn't need any celebrity voices to voice them because that's how they were. That's untrue, of course, but um, we, it does have it does have uh, Alec Baldwin, uh, Hugh Jackman, Il, was it Il, Isla, Isla Fisher, and um, Chris Pine as the the well known Jack Frost character. That Jack Frost. <laughs> Yeah. Everyone's got to believe. Was Michael Keaton too busy? <laughs> he just has a bad no, history. No, he's passed on. He, he, he has a bad history with uh, with uh, snow-related movies, so he wanted to... I'd imagine. Yeah. So uh, let's just jump right into it. Maxwell, what did you think of Rise of the Guardians? You know, Rise of the Guardians is, is an interesting movie because it's kind of like a shot of pure joy into your bloodstream. And I think everyone has a very specific tolerance for that. I personally quite enjoyed it. It left a smile on my face in a way few other films this did, this year did rather. Um, you know, it's not great. I don't think it's up to some of DreamWorks' best films, but at the same time, um, the animation was gorgeous. The story was simple, but really fun. The characters and the, little twists they put on the iconography of these holidays and you know larger than life figures were cool there are lots of little cute creatures running around and uh alexandra Desplat's score 
was appropriately rousing. Um, so it was just like a sweet, good time that uh, warmed my heart this uh, early holiday season. Okay, so <clears throat> I'll go next. I, um, From how you described it, I basically agree with you because I don't think it's great, but it does it's fun enough is how I kind of come away with it. I think it's, it's, it's fine for what it tries to do. I do think it, the story it presents does really does feel generic to me. And that's kind of my main issue with it as it just feels like not a lot's being brought to this, to this story that's being told. I mean, you just, you're, you're putting up all these, all these characters together and the effort to make this, you know, giant team up movie, which feels very suitable for the year that we've had, given that, you know, Avengers is the biggest movie of this year by far. So you have this, now you have this mashup movie of all these holiday characters. And that's, that's kind of, that seems like a fun idea. And that was me. No, what is that? Aaron, <laughs> you sound just like a twelve-pound dog. That was my six-pound dog. Sorry, six-pound. <laughs> but um, I think what the the one of the issues I have in this movie that is trying to be fun, and I do agree with that. I think it's like for kids, this like movie works. It didn't necessarily bring me the kind of joy that I've had in other animated films from this year, even. But like, I do, I do think it's fine for a family audience in you know for this time of year. But one of the things that kind of caught me is I know this this movie's based off a series of books by William Joyce, I believe, is his name. Yeah, correct. And um, from what I can tell, those books have take place before, like the like they establish these characters on their own, yeah. separate books. And so you have this movie that already has it. It feels, I guess, it feels like you're you're walking into like some kind of like an like an X Men movie, for example, and you're supposed to already know who these mutant characters are. That's what Rise of the Guardians kind of had a feeling to me, where I'm like walking in and I'm, I'm supposed to already know that Rush, that Santa Claus is this Russian pirate guy, and Easter Bunny is like this <laughs> this uh, this Australian badass, and like I feel like it's just, it's it's going off of assumed knowledge that I just don't really have, so I just get kind of ideas of who these people are based on you know their voices and like the the traits they have, but it just it just kind of throws these characters together, and I'm expected to kind of get with it. And I did for a lot of it, just because I mean it's fun seeing swashbuckling Russian Santa Claus for the most part. And I you know, I had my my share of fun, but I, I yeah I just don't think it's I don't think it's I don't think it's better than it could be. I guess. Yeah, I, I felt as though it was a uh, it was kind of just average. I, I think I'm not as high as on it as you and Maxwell, uh, and that's primarily because the story was. It's not that the story was cliche or whatever. I wasn't expecting a huge, great story, but um, it just seemed very superficial and very shallow. I, I, it didn't really establish really anybody. Um, and there was this awesome line from the trailer, which I wanted to see, which is like, you know, take no prisoners from the Tooth Fairy. I was like, I wonder if there was like a huge battle sequence that had to be condensed down because they didn't want to go so dark or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean... Again, the animation is fantastic. Right in the beginning, right when you see Jack Frost, his hair is waving like really well, and there's a lot of good physics and and whatever else involved. But um, I thought it was an okay movie. It's good for families, I'm sure. Uh, I didn't see it in 3D. I saw it in 2D. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But on the whole, yeah, just just kind of average compared to some stuff that DreamWorks has been doing lately. Um, so I guess it's hit or miss. Uh, on some of the DreamWorks titles, I because I, I for the problems I have with the characters, I do think Jack Frost and uh, Pitch Black, voiced by Jude Law, the villain of this of this movie, I think those are they're both well handled here, and I they have scenes together that I think are actually quite compelling. That was a uh, something I did admire quite a bit about the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. 
Go. No, go. I think Aaron brought up a couple of really interesting points. Um, you know, he's right. I, I've read, I actually read the books. Um, there's like three novels and then one picture book. Then each one is an origin story of the different characters, Santa Claus, Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny, and then the Sandman, who no one likes, gets the picture book. Um, and so there is some assumed knowledge you need, but at the same time, I feel like because these are characters that um, have had so many stories told about them throughout the years, and we all hear about them as childhood, we kind of have these ideas as to what they're supposed to be. And then to see these, this quick twist on them, we can kind of catch up without needing too much backstory. Um, and like Aaron was saying, the, the Jack Frost stuff is more compelling than the other characters, and that's because this film you know, is like the Jack Frost origin story. So yeah. now you have books and a picture book and now a film that all kind of make up this one volume. Um, I mean, it yeah. definitely is good for families. I saw it with my niece and nephew, and they had the best time. I think they said it was their favorite animated movie of the year, which, you know, when when dealing with kids' films, it's, it can be nice to, to get their perspective, too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with that in just in terms of animated films and children as well. I, w- I would agree that like Santa Claus and Easter Bunny are characters they don't I don't necessarily need like a huge like backstory on. But like, I feel like I mean you have Santa Claus and Easter Bunny and they're fine. Like because you you don't necessarily need to have that backstory. You, just, you get you to have the voices and what have you that establishes who they are well enough. But I feel like the Tooth Fairy is just like girl character. Like there's not much more to her. And like Sandman, who doesn't even get a voice, he's like kind of fun to watch. But like we, we don't know much about like i would have liked to know like more about like how pitch harness sandman's power to well, do what he needed to do <laughs> i i agree with that too but i mean even on a more basic level she's like i would have liked to know a little bit more about sandman because it seems like you know he's a pretty cool character in their little four man army um and same thing with the, the the memories that the tooth fairy collects that would have been pretty cool to to, to upon uh i don't necessarily think that they had to um but it's just it just seems very much like a it's not very much like do sex machina it's just more like oh here's here's some elements that help progress the story that we'll just pull out of thin air um, out of children's and, mouths and, out of children's mouths i guess yeah sure but uh yeah it, it was um it's an interesting concept it just i don't feel as though it was it it feels as though the tone was 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 going different directions, which is to say, yeah, it's, let's make it just family-featured, or let's make it a little bit darker. You know, some of these children can handle stuff like Coraline or, like, Paranorman. You know, it's, it's, it can be darker. But then, I guess, you know, they wanted to rein it back because, again, it feels as though they wanted to go for a pretty good uh, action sequence at the end. Maybe they shot some, or not shot, but maybe they animated some, and maybe they just decided to cut it because... It was super close to the, the main story of, of Jack Frost, or maybe it just was something that the execs felt as though it wasn't family-friendly enough for this time of year. I, I do feel that the darkness adds to the like I like I agree. Like, yeah, uh, I uh, what's so it, uh, sorry, uh, Guillermo del Toro is an executive producer on this movie, and while I, I wouldn't necessarily say his stamp is all over it, I still I feel like I can see his input and in how it factored into making this a movie that does have darker elements and doesn't just play it very cutesy. It could have easily done so. It almost it practically does when you have these elf characters that are supposed to be you know like the minions from minions, the yeah. movie, except they're not they're, they're not. <laughs> they're, they're not they're not as they're not as cute as minions. They're kind of ugly little things that do funny things, of course, because that's kind of what they're required to do. Even the Yeti characters kind of fill that same kind of mold as well. Yeah. But I like I like that it it you know does decide to be 
darker than than the average kind of movie that comes out at this time for you know family audiences to go into. And I do like you know some of the action beats that are happening. I like there's a level of scope that I admire. Like same kind. It's the which is fitting for the realm of DreamWorks that knows how to, seems to know how to handle action sequences because of the Kung Fu Panda movies and how to train your dragon. There's a level of, yeah. there's a wider level of scope that I always appreciate because you really see, you get a, you get a good layout of the geography of these action sequences, which is more than you can say about a lot of, you know, actual action movies that come out year after year. So it, it's, it's a thing I appreciate, but at the same time, yeah, like Abe, you, you mentioned that you, you're, you're not as fond of this as other DreamWorks movies. And I agree. I do think movies like Kung Fu Panda and how to train your dragon, do have a good handle on pre- present? Puss- Sorry? Sorry, and Puss in Boots. Puss, as well. Yeah, Puss in Boots as well. Puss yeah, in Boots. Agreed. Yeah. I, I think they have a better handle on how to tell both a compelling story, how to fit, how to fit a tone that incorporates, you know, adult themes, but also is manages to stay relatively kid friendly. Like it, 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 there's better, there's movies that are better balanced than Rise of the Guardians. I feel. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. I, I did see the, the Maxwell. Did you see it in 3D? I saw it in 3D. I, yeah, I did. Okay. and um, I, I always like, like um, snow or ash effects in 3D because it, it almost feels like it's snowing in the theater, which was nice, but otherwise, take it or leave it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that sentiment. I think it. There are, there's some stuff involving like the, sl- like the souped up sleigh that's like a lot. That's fun to, to get with, and it, like, it works. Santa sleigh? Yeah. No, the other okay. sleigh. <laughs> no, I think about no, like this. The sled, I guess, the kid's sled. Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah, Santa sleigh. Mm. E I G H. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> the action, the action sequences were somewhat redundant because a lot of them felt like riffs on like roller coaster type deals, where you're kind of put in the perspective of a cart or sleigh or sled going through loops and turns as opposed to fighting, which I think Abe was saying there should have been a bigger fight at the end. Yeah, I I don't know if necessarily I wanted there to be a big fight, but it felt as though from the trailers that there was going to be a larger climax, um, especially with the return of, like, some folks um, in the film. So I I think that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, That's another element, and I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that there are human characters in this film, and I feel like as much as I... Honestly, I don't. I think you could have gotten rid of those characters or at least truncated their scenes a lot because they're, they don't really feel like you're like Jack. Like, like like Jack Frost is your gateway character. It's not like they. Need, it's not like they needed these human characters for you to feel like you can accept this world. You have. You're supposed. To, you're following Jack Frost, and I feel like if they minimize this kid stuff and kind of put in more of you know having to being able to develop the other guardian characters, I feel like the film could have benefited from that. I'm not sure I agree with that because. Um, one of the points the film makes is that what separates Jack Frost from the other Guardians is that even though they pro- the other Guardians protect children, Jack Frost has maintained a more um, in-person, quote, relationship with children. And I think it was necessary to at least have one um, sort of representative child of the children to, to maintain that connection and have a face for what it is exactly the Guardians are trying to protect. That's fair enough, and yet yeah. you are putting a face on it, so it's not, yeah, so yeah. as opposed to having anonymous children not being able to see him, there is someone in there, terms, yeah. yeah. In terms of the children, though, I thought the cupcake character was particularly odd. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure what the they were picture. going for. That was the bit, the bigger girl. Right. Oh, yeah, that was, that was kind of rude, wasn't it? <laughs> 
thought it was a little bit rude, and it, or maybe it was also progressive, and I missed the point. Oh, but yeah, perhaps. But, yeah, on first glance, I was like... It doesn't make fun of her. It doesn't belittle no, her. But, I mean, she was clearly supposed to be uh, some sort of challenge like, child. Yeah, the bully. I don't know. I felt like she was more of, like, like a Nelson Muntz-type character. I think that's what they were kind of going <laughs> for. <with. laughs> yeah, exactly. As opposed to a challenge. I don't think she was supposed to be a challenge yeah. character. I think she was just a bigger yeah, girl. Yeah. And she has, you know, she has, you know, like a tiny nickname. So she has Cupcake. Like, that's... Uh, I, I I wouldn't say yeah, I mean it's something that I remember, but it's not something that I really felt. I I, I don't think it, it didn't feel awkward to me that this character existed. Yeah. I, another reason that I felt that it was a little, it was a little bit more just average was because of uh, the problem that Jack Frost has to face in this gets resolved fairly quickly, um, and it, it's it's all within one one uh, quick set and. It could have been a little bit more extensive than that, and it's not a huge knock, but it just kind of just, for kids, it's going to be great, because I remember some kids were just really into this. They were really quiet, really sad when Jack Frost has to be exiled or whatever um, in the snow caverns, just like just like Chris Pine in Star Trek. But, uh, no, I mean, he could have, you know, had to struggle with this and had to struggle with know some kind of moon character uh, but it just gets resolved really quickly and it's not overly it's not overly it is a sad story but at the same time i wasn't super affected by it because i never really got to know jack frost per se see i don't dis- I disagree with that because i feel like i mean i the the movie has issues of character development but i thought jack frost was handled very well i feel like i did get to know him and i did I, I like the way it revealed more and more of his story as it went along. I can see that, but at the same time, I just felt as though it was, was uh, kind of just ho-hum in terms of the way that they went about it. There are a lot of rules in this movie, I feel like. I feel like it needed to had to lay a lot of groundwork so I can get to understand how these Guardians function. Even after, And even then, I still feel like I have some haziness involved, or like some, some things unexplained about how their powers work exactly. We have to believe in them. Well, be, yeah, beyond the base. It's like an elf. Yeah, beyond, you know, clap your hands and fairies live or whatever. Like, I mean, it's just... The universe that Willie Joyce has created. Really weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, I, I, I get that, yeah, that there is... Again, it comes off of... If I had the knowledge I had already based on the books, maybe I would have been able to kind of get into that world more, but... While I did appreciate the things that were brought, brought to me and, like, how certain things were handled, I do think like, there is that presumed knowledge kind of held held me back from appreciating it more, I guess. I kind of I kind of want to piggyback off of Maxwell there and just, you know, repeat what he said about just I, I felt as though the mythology of all these folks individually is fine. And I didn't even know that there were this was based on a book, so I kinda of just went with it and just was thinking that this is a this is a, a somewhat original story about what if the hero, or what if the the people from the holidays were actually real warriors that protected you? Um, and I thought that was pretty cool, but at the same time, you know, just the execution wasn't as uh, as sharp as I wanted. I mean, I, I assumed it had to be based on a book because I'm like, where is Russian tatted up Santa coming from? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> like, 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 I guess they just wanted Alec Baldwin to put on the worst accent ever. Right. 
I loved it. I love the accent. Yeah, I, said, <laughs> I like I like Alec Baldwin's accent, but come on, how cool would it have been if Guillermo del Toro voiced Santa Claus? Like he is, he's his accent is so Spanish good. Santa Claus. There you go. That's, That's full. He has such a great accent. That would have been amazing if, if Guillermo del Toro. He looks like Santa Claus. Like how hard would that have been? <laughs> well, how awkward would it be if there was just one live action character played by Guillermo del Toro walking around the Santa Claus? I will stick up for Jude Law more, because I really think he gave the best vocal performance of Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, I, well, I like Jude Law in general. I always think oh. he's excellent. I do, you know what? And I've wa- I just recently watched um, AI again, and I watched um, Road to Perdition not too long ago. Like, Jude Law had this great, like, he hasn't stopped. Like, he's, he's continually good at everything, but I really like Jude Law quite a bit. And what I like about Jude Law is that for someone who's so pretty, he usually plays really gross characters. Yeah, I mean, like uh, like in Gattaca, too. I mean, he's like a really yeah. nasty dude, and then he gets a sensitive side that you didn't really see coming. And what was that? Gattaca. Gattaca. Oh, yeah, and in uh, Contagion as well. That's, that character yeah. was nasty. <laughs> yeah, he plays some seedy individuals at times. Even like uh, Talented Mr. Ripley, he plays an asshole in that movie. <laughs> that his performance. How was, how was the movie with uh, Forrest Whitaker? Which one? Uh, the one where he oh, is the repo man. man. Oh, yeah, repo man. that's it's it's fine. Like, okay, I'll put it this way: I didn't necessarily like that movie, but it was on HBO not too long ago, and I kind of sat there and watched like half of it because I'm like, you know what? This that movie's not terrible. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like they're, they're those two are having a lot of fun in that movie. Okay, all right, all right. So let's uh, let's get to our uh, our rating for uh, Rise of the Guardian each week. We try to. <laughs> Rate movies based on when you should go and see them. We have our scale, IMAX, theater, dollar theater, HBO, TV. Just kind of forget about it. Maxwell, where would you put Rise of the Guardians on that scale? I'd see it in theaters, especially if you are or have kids. Abe? Yeah, I'd say with families, it's theater. Uh, otherwise, I'd, I'd probably say Netflix. I'd give it a dollar theater. I think it's in family, Family's out. They just saw Wreck-It Ralph, and they learned about Lincoln. And then they go and see uh, then they go, then they go and see Rising Guardians. <laughs> the, History lesson for children. Go see, I think go that's, that's a fun day. It's a fun day to be. Triple feature. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's talk about a couple other movies, even though Abe and I have been involved in other recordings that have talked about some of these other movies already. I want to hear Maxwell's thoughts on, uh, first up, Life of Pi. What did you think of Life of Pi, Maxwell? Um, I thought Life of Pi was a very mixed bag for me. Um, I kind of separate the film in three acts in my head. The middle act of which is absolutely stunning. The filmmaking is accomplished. Visual effects are, I would say, arguably some of the best I've ever seen. The 3D was great. The emotional stakes were high. And this newcomer actor, and I apologize, I can't remember his name... I thought was incredibly compelling. Um, but then the first act and the last act just didn't work for me at all and kind of completely uh, crumbled the movie. Um, I have read the book, so I knew sort of the, the structure and the allegorical att- uh, approach that the story takes, but I found uh, its portrayal in the film very ham-fisted and on-the-nose um, and I thought missed some of the the finer and more subtle points that would have made for a more effective whole. Um, yes. Really great filmmaking, but I had no connection to it at all. Now, I feel like, Abe, you're going to agree with Maxwell. Yeah, I was you, you, exactly you, that. Yeah, you, you have also read the book. I both read the books, Maxwell. So I felt as though, yeah, the, the, 
emotional uh, hits that, that the book gives you, even though it's a little bit slow in the beginning of the book, um, you know, the, the contemplative things that the book uh, has hits you a little bit better than the movie does. And the movie is visually stunning, but it's just, you know, I, I just felt more of his plight in from the book. I mean, yeah, I completely agree. I hate to make my thoughts so completely dependent upon comparison to the source material. <laughs> yeah, I've said that. I said that yesterday too. The the device that the film uses is such a literary device, you know, where you have an older character telling his story to an author, um, and it it just felt very sort of stale and 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 dull to me, and really took a lot out of this middle section, which was terrific. Um, I wish it had been stronger all all around, um, and I, I don't know. I I think the ending feels a little cheaper in the movie than it did in the book. I know a lot of people have issues with the ending, and I don't want to reveal it here at all. But in the book, where you're dealing more with something literary, okay, I understand. And in the film, I was a lot more betrayed by it. I guess would the is the word I'd use. Yeah. Now I've already shared my thoughts twice so far in this episode of the podcast. This, 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 this very ambitious episode of our podcast this week. <laughs> it's not that I'm, I can't really disagree with you necessarily, just because I haven't read the books, so I don't have a basis of comparison to say you're wrong. <laughs> but I do, I did appreciate the film, and I did like the book ending elements more than you guys. Obviously, I mean, it, it, I, it's not, you know, it's not my, it's not the highlight of the film to me compared to obviously the journey of. Of Pi and on in the tiger and, and sorry Richard Parker on the ocean, but, uh, <laughs> it, I, I do I do think there are a lot of effective elements going on in both the beginning and the end, and I think it come a lot of it comes to while it I mean not the most elaborate presentation, but I really do like Irfan Khan's performance as the older Pi who narrates this story. I really like the emotion that he was putting off in how he kind of told the tale. But so, what did you think of uh, the visual? Like uh, in three, did you watch it in three D? Me? Yeah. Oh yeah, I I said before I saw it in three D. I thought it was. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess yeah, I didn't I hear that part. But it was good. Really great uh, live yeah. action three D. Um, and further argument for the potential legitimacy of it in terms of storytelling and cinema. I don't think it had as much of a thematic purpose as say in Hugo. But at the same time, it was used really, really beautifully. The picture was lit properly, so there was no dimness. The um, you know the depth of field and the perception was was strong, and it made some elements really intense. Yeah, the, uh, the shifting aspect ratios thing also. That that kind of yeah, I I don't know how I felt about that. I read it. I was interested to see if there was anything online about. Ang Lee's decision to do that. So I looked it up and I read an interview with him where he basically said he felt that we, you know, stick too much to traditional filmmaking techniques and we should kind of throw, you know, caution to the wind and just do what we want. But it, those two scenes kind of took me out of it just because the shifts were so unsubtle. It was like one shot. If it had been, you know, disparate scenes where you're, you're, editing from one scene to another but it was like mid-scene it, it went from one aspect ratio to another i mean i can say the same thing about like the imax presentations of of mission impossible or dark Knight. they're maybe they're more in, given the nature of the action in those movies are maybe different but i feel like it's the same type of thing 
Fair enough. I, I can't disagree with that. And Ang, Ang Lee has, he's played with that in the past with, um, with his Hulk movie, which is something I did. As much as I have mixed feelings about that movie, I really liked, he really directed the hell out of that movie in terms of what he was <laughs> making a, a comic book style fit into the frame of the film. I, re- I really liked some of the decisions that he was going for with that one. Yeah, I, I mean, Ang Lee's an incredible director. I mean, even though he's won a, an Oscar, I, I don't think he gets as much recognition as he deserves, particularly from his versatility, because if you look at his career all the way back to, like, Ride with the Devil and the Ice Storm, which is a personal favorite, to then to be able to do The Hulk and Life of Pi and Lust Caution and, of course, Brokeback Mountain. I mean, Crouching I don't Tiger. Yeah. yeah, Crouching Tiger. I don't think at this point there's anything he can't do. Yeah, he, so I, he and, like, uh, like Danny Boyle was another one who I think are just, like, very versatile directors that you just, you, you can't, you, you don't, you can't pin them down on a certain genre, and there's not many filmmakers that really do that these days. I can name a few, but I mean, it's not, not something you see very often, for sure. Right, and, and I, taking that into account, I like that a guy like him who is so versatile is now taking the opportunity to experiment with the form, because, um, there's so much I feel like unexplored in the realm of filmmaking. Like, even in the, the best films that come out in a given year, there's still, you know, a lot of the time just well done films that play by the rules and you know breaking the rules can be really exciting too so all right so um because i don't want to be talking a lot about life of high this week i want to move on to the next film uh, silver linings playbook which you know you saw maxwell and do you want to give your thoughts on that film <laughs> sure um i'm i'm definitely in the minority but i really really hated silver lining hated wow. really wow vitriol like, coming out of your mouth on like, this film. i have yeah, I've, i'm a neutral party I mean, I'll say I thought Jennifer Lawrence was excellent, even though her character is bullshit. I'm sorry, I don't know if you allow courage on podcasts. Um, and Bradley Cooper is pretty good, even though I think he relies too much on like actorly ticks and and gestures instead of, you know, the cutting to the internal, which I find more impressive in terms of acting. When he does do that, he's he's great. And then there are other moments where I thought he was kind of cartoonish, which is my problem with the movie as a whole. I mean, I understand it's a comedy and it's, you know, screwball or slap, whatever you want to call it, but, you know, you're dealing with these characters who have severe mental illnesses because bipolar disorder is really serious and sex addiction is also really serious. And I thought it, it kind of made a mockery out of that. So you have a film where the first half is like this really tasteless, again, I thought, look at mental illness, and then it shifts into a far more conventional romantic comedy. And I I actually like that part better because I'm a, I'm a sap when it comes to that. So the ending is all happy, and I don't think that's a spoiler. I mean, the movie's called Silver Linings Playbook. I think you expect it to, to end well, but... I just sat wrong wrong with me. The whole thing just made me very uncomfortable. Like I was being asked to laugh at these people who I just felt sad for. I, I don't. I don't feel like it was forced. It was. Made, it was trying to have me laugh at these people because of the problems they have. I think that. I think the tone did ma- manage to do right by what it was presenting, as opposed to being, as opposed to fitting into a more dr- dramatic territory that's dealing with people with these kind of problems. It took a lighter touch to it, and it does fit a certain mold of comedy about as opposed to being you know a dark dramatic movie which it easily could have been and i i 
I was on board with it without feeling like I was laughing at these people with problems. I didn't feel uncomfortable with, the, with that fact. I've been my main. The main thing I've been saying about this too is that I, I did have problems with this in the fighter, which it doesn't deal with mental illness, but it does deal with kind of having a cartoonish side to it involving the sister characters in that film. And I feel like it, David o. Russell was able to take that aspect and bring it into this film and just make that the whole thing. And I was able to run. I was able to run with that tone. I, I didn't have an issue with how it brought that out. I, I, it's interesting that you you mentioned that because in my my um, written review, I actually made very brief mention. Um, to the fact that the dynamic of Bradley Cooper and Robert De Niro's family felt really similar to me of, of the sisters in The Fighter. Um, lots of scenes of, of really shrill yelling in a, in a, a house in um, a portrayal of a city that maybe goes a little bit too far over the line of stereotypical. I mean, I grew up, I lived in rather in Philly for a long time, and I don't know. I took a little issue with the way it portrayed the city, um, but I felt like he did carry that over from the fighter, but in a negative way for me. Hmm. Dude, would you, would you say that worked better for you in the fighter? Yes. Right. I thought it felt more, I didn't love the fighter either, but I thought it felt more in tune with the fighter than it did here. Are you a David, are you a David Russell fan in general? I mean, I absolutely love I Heart Huckabees and Three Kings. <laughs> we had, we had one of our guests yesterday who was talking about um, David O'Russell. He absolutely hates I Heart Huckabees yeah. and loves somebody's playbook. I mean, I think I Heart Huckabees is genius and one of the best comedies of, of recent times. So, I mean, obviously, tastes can be very baffling and different. And No, I have no issue with David O'Russell. I think he's a talented guy, but I just think you missed the mark here even in terms of the filmmaking craft like the way the film was shot it just felt dissonant to me like there are these frenetic swooping camera movements that didn't tonally match with what was happening on screen to me and it continuously took me out of it as far as performances go uh i guess uh, people were pretty good on uh, robert de niro what'd you think maxwell yeah, I mean, De Niro was, was very good. He he was clearly, I mean, I don't think he ever lost his talent. I just think he's kind of been... Not using it as much. <laughs> not taking the right roles. But, I mean, he was definitely passionate and committed, and, and the character arc is, is a little thin, but also he has a lot of good material to work with at the same time, so he was very good. Um, you know, and again, I thought Jennifer Lawrence was great, but... Um, I don't know how much you guys care, but about Oscar talk, and there's, she has all this Oscar buzz, but for my money, I thought she was much better and had much stronger material in The Hunger Games. Not that she would ever get an Oscar nomination for The Hunger Games, but... Hmm. I mean, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, all right, uh, Maxwell, I believe you also saw Anna Karenina. You want to give us your thoughts on that movie? This must stop. If you have any thought for me, you will give me back my peace. There can be no peace for us. Only misery... My greatest happiness. Oh, is love? We are bound together by God, and this can only be broken by a crime against God. Something's happened. Not something, everything. It would be a sin to help you destroy yourself. Sensual desire indulged for its own sake is the misuse of something sacred. The man who can't govern his wife has gone as far as he can go in government. Anna isn't a criminal, but she broke the rules. Leave. Leave my life. She'll be ruined. Do you think I would let you have my son? You are depraved. 
a woman without honor. And this is what you want. Sure, absolutely. I, um, I did see the film, and I'll keep this brief. Um, I mean, I was very impressed with this. Um, I thought it was a really audacious and fascinating approach to telling this story. Um, it's um, It really condensed down this epic novel into the most basic elements, and instead of using text and dialogue, it uses things like movement and performance and dance and... and um, this gorgeous scenery and set change. The entire film takes place inside one theater, basically. And the way all of the pieces move is so precise. Um, it's just like a marvel of, of, of film craft, complemented by incredible performances. Kira Knightley continues to be excellent, and we were talking about him before, but Jude Law, I think, gives one of the most unsung performances of this year in this film. Um, he is just excellent um, and, and playing against type in some ways because he's kind of playing an older guy with a receding hairline and he's um, sort of out of touch with modern society and he speaks in a very soft-spoken voice and he was just excellent. And it's just such bold filmmaking with a great score. I loved it. I would definitely recommend seeking it out for something um, a little more... Uh, adventurous this holiday season. Do you know who does the score offhand? Uh, yeah, it was Dario Marianelli, who uh, I think won the Oscar for Atonement. Okay, and he, yeah, 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 yeah. I know Atonement won. If it was him, then good yeah. on him. Because I do like Joe Wright's Joe some music and films. Yeah. yeah, Joe Wright's director who yeah, did yeah. Um, Hannah and Atonement and Pride and Prejudice. And I I am a fan of his as a director, and I really like the way he also utilizes music. And films, I agree, so. yeah. It seems as if he seamlessly like intertwines both of them to give you uh, like one of those ultimate visual and audio experiences. Yeah, I would completely agree with that, it, particularly in terms of Anna Karenina. Um, the film is sort of like a cinematic ballet in its use of music and movement. It's really just kind of blew my mind and just took my breath away. Joe Wright is endlessly inventive and talented, and... I can't wait to see what he does next. I'd love if it were a James Bond movie. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see a Joe Wright James Bond movie. That'd be something. I mean, he, he, I think he proved he could do it with, with Hannah. So. Hannah, for sure, yeah. How was, uh, how was Kick-Ass in uh, Anna Karenina? I know Aaron Johnson, <laughs> I know Aaron Johnson is, is he, in this he, he was actually quite good. I mean, he surprised me over the past couple movies because he's a really versatile guy, and he's proving to be something of a chameleon. I mean, to go from Kick-Ass to Savages to Anna Karenina, I, if I didn't know, I would have no idea it's the same guy. And um, he's really sort of elegant and dashing, and he has an absolutely phenomenal mustache. Uh -oh. <laughs> I am a and fan of good mustaches in films. So. <laughs> yeah, and particularly, you know, it's November, it's Movember, whatever that is. So, I mean, he definitely is at the top of my November 2012 best mustaches list. <laughs> And I'll, I'll be sure to link to that list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would love to see the rest of your job. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I did declare um, Lincoln to be the best uh, beard movie since uh, True Grit in 2010. Uh, so, I mean, that oh, was a lot I, of fine beard. Yeah, I think maybe James Spader would, would, would be top of the best mustache list. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see Lincoln? Actually, you saw Lincoln, right? Yeah, I saw Lincoln. Did you like Lincoln? I adored it. I think it's truly, truly an excellent film. All right. And let's see. What else before we 
Get out of here. How about Flight? Did you see Flight? I did see Flight. I did not care for it at all. Yeah, yeah you're, you're kind of on board with us. Yeah, I was. I thought Denzel was great, but the film was contrived and in, insultingly in, in its uh, portrayal of... Alcohol addiction. Yeah, substance abuse. Yeah. Yeah, I had similar thoughts on it as well. I, um, I'm not trying to, like, boot you up, but, like, I know we just... Abe and I are very curious about how this podcast is going to turn out since we've had such a mishmash of different ho- of different guests coming on to give us our, <laughs> their opinions of various holiday films that have come out. I am calling this the Holiday Hodgepodge episode. That's the title yeah. I've been calling with. Like a great title to me. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Maxwell, uh, can you uh, tell the people where you, people can find more of your work? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you can find my work at theractfocus.com, um, or you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash maxlhad. Great. And uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us and talking, uh, giving your opinions about many of the films that have come out. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me, and happy, happy Thanksgiving, and happy early holidays. Awesome, yeah, sure, thank you very much. sure. We'll, you. sure we'll have you back on soon enough. Man, this is a packed this episode, and it's like about super to peanuts up. packed. It's a, it's about to get even more packed because myself and friend of the show Liz Manishill from Just Seen It, we talked about the movie Hitchcock. Oh, awesome, and. Oh yeah, and you're you're about to hear some samples from that one. I don't know why I said samples. You're about to hear the whole damn thing. <laughs> so remember to please turn off your cell phone because that's the most terrifying thing. All right, so here I am with Liz Manishill from Just Seen It. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> and um, adding on to this this ambitious holiday hodgepodge podcast, all of those words. Uh, we're going to be uh, talking a little bit about Hitchcock, the new film starring Anthony Hopkins as Hitchcock and Helen Mirren as his wife, Alma Ravel. And uh, so this is this is the film that chronicles the story of the making of Psycho in a way, but it really kind of turns into a story about Hitchcock and Alma's marriage. Why are you letting him do something so tasteless? Don't upset yourself, darling. It's only a bloody movie. More anger! More! <laughs> Married to a man obsessed by murder. This will not be released in this country. Show me some damn footage now! I'm under extraordinary pressures on this picture, and the least you could do is give me your full support. We've mortgaged our house! I am your wife. I celebrate with you when the reviews are good, I cry for you when they are bad, and I put up with those people who look through me as if I were invisible, because all they can see is the great and glorious genius Alfred Hitchcock. promised mother I wouldn't tell. Oh, you imp, you've got nudity in there. Well, her breasts were rather large, but it was a challenge not to show them. And now, so with that said, Liz, what did you think of Hitchcock? You know, I, I watched it with a discerning eye because I'm a little bit biased. I have to, I have a disclaimer because I'm a little biased going in because I'm potentially working one, with one of the actors who is in the movie Hitchcock and he's, his name is Richard Port now and he plays uh, Barney oh, Alabama. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of the time watching the movie, like really being super hypercritical of Richard Port now and not really putting my critical eye on the whole film as I should have been. Um, so I have like vague big critical responses to the film. And and those are that I felt it was a decent film, but I felt like it lacked energy and I did not feel a sense of suspense because I knew that the film was going to be like, I knew that psycho 
the whole film is about making Psycho. I knew the film Psycho would be a success. So I didn't have any worries about any of the conflicts or any of the, um, how do I put it? Any of the, the drama in the film revolves around making the film and I knew that they'd succeed. So I felt like I lacked a little bit of energy in that aspect. All right. I would, I agree with you to an extent. I, I agree with you that, um, yeah, obviously you know what's going to happen. Well, I mean, I, ideally you already know that Psycho is going to be a success. So the lack of, there's a lack of urgency, I guess, in, or stakes in whether or not this is going to all work out. Right. But, but what I appreciate, cause I did like the movie overall. What I did, what I appreciate about it is I think it's these performances specifically from, um, Anthony Hopkins and Helen Mirren, just because the film, I know, I know, okay, I know a lot about Psycho. It's one, it's my, it's the movie I club my name, my favorite horror movie, if asked offhand, and I know a lot about the making of Psycho, I know a lot about Hitchcock, I'm a big Hitchcock fan. So, I know a lot of the facts that this movie tries to present already, and I'm aware that a lot of them aren't really true, or at least the way they handle them. So, knowing that and seeing how they're more or less kind of cheekily pointing out things, that are like, you know, myths about the making of Psycho or what have you, as opposed to actually representing the making of Psycho. Right. I feel like that didn't, that, I can see how that could ruin the movies for certain people that are, you know, ex, that are similarly very inclined to know a lot about Hitchcock and Psycho already. But I was happier with seeing um, Anthony Hopkins and Helen Mirren just have these kind of fun performances in this film <laughs> that's kind of revisionist history about the making of Psycho. Oh, I I completely am on your side with that. I mean, I thought the performances were pretty great for the most part. I I did feel a little wink-wink with every performance. Like, I thought Scarlett Johansson was perfect as Janet Leigh. I I never would have thought of it. Like, I I loved her. But then even as much as I loved her and thought she was perfect and knocked it out of the park, I couldn't help but think it was an homage. And it wasn't really, you know, from the ground up a performance. And the same thing goes with Anthony Hopkins. And the same thing goes with, um, I forgot the wonderful actor who plays Tony Perkins. Um, oh, James Darcy, who was it? And I love, yeah, these are all fantastic actors. And, um, but I, I felt like it was a little wink, wink, whereas Helen Mirren, her performance to me was the only completely creative, um, you know, actress taking on the role and really making it her own. I don't think that she it didn't she didn't feel censored from the the stigma attached to the public persona because I don't think a lot of people know about Alma Ravel. I see, and, I, and that's why I agree with you that I think Helen Mirren does does the, does the best among this very large ensemble cast. And um, but I also think it's because Alma, opposed to Hitchcock, who's a very eccentric personality, like people know who Hitchcock is and they know how he is and how he acts yeah. and what have you. I don't think. Obviously, people, I don't think people know Alma as much to be able to recognize how close to the character Helen Mirren is in terms of creating a performance versus imitating the person she's representing. Yeah, she had a lot of freedom, and I thought that um, that freedom gave – yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the other performances were fantastic, but because of the subject matter and because of the script, they were a little bit chained to these impersonations at times, which is difficult, and it's not the actor's fault and it's not the director's fault. It's really the fact that – these are people in the public eye and audiences are going to bring their own expectations to those performances regardless. So it's like, this is not even like a criticism. It's more like, Oh gee, golly, that's annoying. But it was still a good performance. I can say that with some, like Anthony Hopkins. I think he does do a good enough job of good enough. I think he does a very good job of um, both portraying Hitchcock as we know him, but also bringing in his own kind of 
qualities to the role that make it seem less of a dead-on imitation of Hitchcock and more of a, in the way he kind of, you know, he, in the way like, um, what's his name, Franklin Gill did like Nixon and, and Frost Nixon, I think it's like, I, I think there's enough of a balance between the actor and the person that they're representing, I guess. Well, it's interesting that you brought up Nixon, because I just saw the Oliver Stone Nixon with Anthony Hopkins. And... <laughs> I didn't even first I blanked on Anthony Hopkins playing that same right. character. <laughs> And I, I was, like, blown away by that performance. I mean, that was just astounding because I think of Anthony Hopkins. I think of Remains of the Day. I think of Sounds of the Lambs. I think there's no way this guy who looks nothing like Nixon could play Nixon, and he did, and he was astounding. And I thought the same obsessive traits and paranoid traits that Nixon had um, that Anthony Hopkins did so well portraying in the movie Nixon – I thought he brought it to Hitchcock, and I thought that was successful in, in terms of what you're saying as having a more rounded character and, and bringing kind of unusual characteristics um, to the role of Alfred Hitchcock. You said well-rounded and, you know, Hitchcock's huh. uh-huh. Um Anyway, um, <laughs> some of the, as far as some of the other performances go, like I do think I do like Scarlett Johansson in this role, which is – this is a good year for Scarlett Johansson because I generally don't really care for her that much, but I really liked her in The Avengers, and I really liked her here too. Like she – she brings a, a warmth and charisma to her performance as opposed to, you know, not having those things, which is what I feel like I've been witness to in other years involving her in many roles. But uh, with that, there's also uh, – you brought up uh, 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 James Darcy as Tony Perkins. Him and um, even, like, Kerwood Smith and even Richard – Richard Borden out to an extent, like – it. well, okay, with Anthony Perkins, it feels like he's he's being played almost as a joke because of – he's you know is it rumored or they know that he's like homosexual in the movie like the way he's almost he almost feels like his character's there to serve a joke gag like that's what it feels like and that was a little as much as he does he does seem to be doing like a dead-on anthony perkins um imitation it it feels like he's just there for one reason to like fuel a couple jokes that the movie had to play on this character which is a little unfortunate but like not too much to take me out of the film uh, right. Kurt, Kurt, uh, you're talking about the the bedroom scene, right? yeah. Like the peeking top scene, yeah. yeah. He, there's like a couple lines he has where it's like, oh, okay, that's that's funny, I guess. And and then like Kurtwood Smith and and uh, Richard Portnow, like Portnow, I think is actually good. I like him in the in the role of the producer, but they are like the antagonists of the film, and like it comes. It's fortunate that this movie isn't trying to be so much the making of Psycho as it is about the relationship between Alma and Hitchcock, because. By by painting these two people as like the antagonists of the film, if it really focused on that, it, it would again go to how the film doesn't really have so high stakes because we know everything's going to work out. So you're just having these two people mm-hmm. represent antagonists for that you know are going to lose and like, are serving one purpose only. So right, I'm not scared of Richard Portnow at all, and like you know, I, I I met him and he can be a very intimidating guy, and like when he in every scene that he's in, he has that booming voice and an intense stare down and in all those scenes I feel like those scenes lost gravity because you know the studio is going to make a lot of money and you know there's nothing for him to worry about and uh, let's see what did you think of uh, the the Ed Gain aspect of this film that was cool that was the part I loved the most actually because um so often Hollywood films and studio films not that this is in any way I mean there's no barrier between studio and independent anymore but not that this is the prototypical studio film um but so many mainstream films make excuses for fantasy sequences 
And this film just had Ed Gein just pop up whenever it wanted to and never really truly explained why he was there. And I loved that. It was nice to have something a little bit vague in a film that seemed so clear cut at times. And to kind of delve in for people that may not have seen the movie, the Ed Gein role, Ed Gein is, he's a famous murderer who led on to the inspiration of the book that Psycho is based on, as well as others, including like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that film, and Silence of the Evening, Silence of the Lambs, like that. Ed Gein's inspired various serial killer people in, in fictional media. And so he, at the beginning of the film, we do see Ed Gein and, played by Michael Wincott, and he kind of factors into Hitch's, kind of subconscious, he kind of becomes this kind of fantasy figure that he deals with as a, not necessarily a conscious, but as a person he can talk to or have nightmares with at the same time. So right. it's a, it's a weird kind of, it's an interesting little thing to add on. I, I, I liked it too. I like, I thought it was kind of a, a neat little quirk to the film that is otherwise somewhat straightforward, but at the same time, that's another thing I liked about the film. Um, it, it feels less like a, I mean, it's certainly not a biopic. It's more of just a study of one time in history, regardless of how true to history it is. But it feels like um, Ed Wood was one of my biggest kind of comparisons because of the tone of that movie. This movie's a lot of fun. That's something I have. Okay, yeah, I can see that, definitely. I, I feel like this movie, it's less trying to be a stodgy drama, even though it does involve the, the perils of managing a relationship. I mean, it, it it's a lot of fun. And I, it's because of, you know, the performances, which some of them are a little more comical in nature just kind of wink in, in terms of how they're being portrayed by the actors but it's a fun movie i don't think it ever really gets bogged down in the drama too much necessarily yeah i think um what you enjoy the most is what frustrates me the most and that's because you know we both know a lot about hitchcock and i wanted to i wanted some muckraking i wanted to see a side of hitchcock that was truly unattractive or you know shocking or i just want to see something new about him and I think there's more to um, the phrase I used on just seeing it was like more depths to plunge. I don't even know if that's grammatically correct, but I think that there's more to explore with Hitchcock than this film did. And instead it, it took a more entertainment light route and or route. Um, and that works for some people. And personally I was expecting something different, so it didn't work as well for me. I can say that. Did you see the, uh, the girl by chance, the HBO? I was special? just, Hold that that film takes the direction that I was looking for. It so does, I, but at the same time, it's not a really enjoyable film. I didn't think it was very good. Like, I think Toby Jones is, he's, he's, he, he's good as Hitchcock, and he falls into another position where he's playing the same character as someone else is playing in the same year, which he did with uh, Infamous and Capote, which came out in the same year. That yeah. year with Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Capote, you know, winning an Oscar, and then this other movie comes out where he's doing the exact same thing, which is unfortunate or badly timed. <laughs> But um, so with this with the girl, which is take, which is basically the unofficial sequel to Hitchcock, as it's about the filming of The Birds, the film that he made <laughs> after Hitchcock. That film does highlight the kind of the obsessiveness that Hitchcock had with his blonde characters. In that case, it's to be Hedren in that film, who's played by Sienna Miller. And while it's interesting to kind of note that darker aspect of Hitchcock or his kind of eccentricities that make him weirder in a meaner spirited sort of way, it the film's not very entertaining and it may be just because the film's not that well made necessarily as opposed to people with someone else, maybe it could have taken it to a better level or if it was a theatrical feature, maybe it would have had a better handle on how to make it. But regardless, I, I, I did have more fun watching this Hitchcock film because yeah, it's made to be more fun, but I also, I don't know, I guess I was able to look past the fact that it wasn't being more, um, wasn't delving deeper into the Hitchcock persona. 
Yeah, and I think I'm just being super negative right now about it because when I was watching it, I definitely laughed more than a handful of times. And I remember, you know, a plastered grin on my face at some of the, the in-jokes. And I for, I very much enjoyed all the scenes between Alma and Hitch because to me, the meat of the film are the scenes between those two characters. And, and that's actually what what I think the film could have focused on a little bit more is their relationship because to me, there, there were true stakes in their relationship and whether they would maintain a certain amount of intimacy or not. Um, and watching that and um, going on that journey was pretty, uh, was, I don't know. I was, I liked that part of it. It was exciting. For sure. And I think, yeah, the, cause I don't, I certainly don't think it's a perfect film by any means. I don't think it's a great film, but I do think it's a good movie. And I think, yeah, it could have been, if it wasn't so, if it, if the movie you know, didn't have psycho as its backdrop and just had, if like it was, if, if it was a story that was the main focus was on the Hitchcock Alma relationship, which it kind of is, although it it's, it's basically a back and forth between that and Psycho. If it was just on the relationship aspect and they fleshed that out more and had Psycho way more in the background, then maybe the movie would have been better. And yeah. if, at the same time, if it was about the making of Psycho and just had the relationship aspect as kind of a sub thing, which you easily could have done as well, it could have been better as well. I, I know that they, the uh, the producers, whatever, could not get. That the Hitchcock estate did not allow them to go as deep into Psycho as I guess they maybe could have wanted to. So they, that's why you don't get to see a lot. You there. That's why there are a lot of changes, and there are you don't get to see like the Bates Motel, for instance. And there's certain aspects that don't occur the way you thought they would. But so that does hold the film back, I guess, from exploring more of the making of Psycho aspect. But that makes perfect sense actually, because it felt like um, the film was almost wanting to be more inquiring into it, into Hitchcock, but there was something stopping it. And I can totally see that now. And um, the lack of energy of the film, I think could be attributed to that as well. Yeah. And that, yeah, is that kind of thing where I, I could tell that the, and I could tell that before I even, cause there was a Q and a after my screening and I, I figured that out before I even heard that fact. I'm like, clearly they could not get like the rights to certain aspects because there are certain things there that are like, that's just not true. Or that's just, <laughs> why am I not seeing this for like, why am I not seeing the Bates motel in a movie about the making of psycho? Right. And, um, and another thing that kind of got me, because I know, like, there's the shower scene, the famous shower scene of Psycho, and they show that in this film. And I'm like, I'm aware that that, film, that scene took, like, three days to film. And that, that was a very intensive scene to make. And this film, it just shows it from a completely different perspective, because it's focused on Hitchcock's own personal troubles and how he's basically taking that out in the filming of that scene until it gets done in, like, what, a matter of minutes. And I'm like, that's not right. That's not, that's not how they made that scene. <laughs> So it's like, yeah, it's little things like that that do make the film lesser than it could have been. And, yeah, the fact that, like, this, I know this film, this film's all, it's based off a book about, it's called, like, Alfred, I think it's like Alfred Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho. I think that's the name mm-hmm. of the, the book. And, it's like, so it's adapted from that, but it still feels like it's, it's basically taking, it's taking, like, a Cliff Notes version of that just to kind of appropriate the story of Psycho in this film. But then it turns into this relationship drama. And so as it stands, yeah, it doesn't quite get to encompass all of these facts. It just has a couple of those things with highlights going to the relationship portion, as opposed to what I guess then some way what I imagine some people are more hoping for is a, 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 a appropriate look at the filming of psycho via these amazing actors that they've brought into play. Yeah. And I, I think um, as a last note, um, uh, when we interviewed Richard Port now and just seen it, I asked him what it was like working with the director, and um, I was—I can never pronounce his name right, but it's Sasha Gervaisi, is that right? Yeah, I believe so. 
Um, director of Anvil, the story right. of Anvil, which okay. is a great it's documentary. The coolest documentary in the world. Like, I am such a huge fan of that. I went to a, a screening of Anvil with Anvil there performing oh, live, awesome. and I, <laughs> I died. It was like, so awesome. Um, and so I, coming from documentary and having seen Anvil, I thought, well, I'm I'm nervous that maybe Sasha was a little bit shy in the directing of this film, and maybe, you know, I mean, it was stacked with these high-profile actors, and, and maybe that's why he didn't want to um, – tackle the issues or or be as discerning about Hitchcock because he's you know coming from an outside genre but um but I, I knowing what we do know know now what you're saying about the Hitchcock estate and things like that and their source material I, um, I think I have wrongfully blamed Sasha Gervais Sasha Gervaisi um for his tentativeness as a director. And most likely it had nothing to do um, with my qualms of the film. I, I will say the film, even though, yeah, it doesn't have, it didn't have the ability to do certain things it maybe would have liked to have done if it had the approval of the Hitchcock estate. I will say that the film, it does look a little TV at times. It doesn't, it, it, it does feel kind <laughs> of less a big theatrical feature, more of the caliber of an HBO special, for instance. It's the energy. I, honestly, I, I think it's that it doesn't have any punch and, I thought the music was go- – and I, I, I don't know if we have, how much time we have, but I thought the music could have been used or employed a lot better to create more punch and more excitement in the storyline. And instead, it, it did uh, diverge to a more – what you're saying, a more the, television the feeling. sitcom kind of vibe. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, th- I mean, those are just elements that take it oh, take it down for me. And, again, yeah. I do like the film. I just, yeah, I, it, <laughs> it's, it, it's just it has a lot of things that I think are notable to make that, to make it lesser than a film of that's trying to encapsulate the 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 the, uh, the legacy of Hitchcock, I guess. Yeah, I feel like we keep apologizing for not loving it because it's about someone so awesome. And there were so many great things about it. But, you know, regardless, it just didn't hit it out of the park. Well, I, th- I feel like I apologize because I apologize because I know that I'm a Hitchcock fan. I know a lot about him, so I feel like me liking this film is almost like not necessarily a great thing because of how many things it changes. But I did have fun with it, so it's like this weird balance. <laughs> like I did have fun watching this movie, even though I know it's inaccurate in a lot of scenarios. <laughs> but yeah, so cool. All right, so um. We have our scale of when you should go and see this movie. In, uh, our, our scale is uh, from IMAX to theater to dollar theater, HBO, TV, or just kind of forget about it. Liz, where would you put Hitchcock on that scale? You know, even though I'm a, a cranky McCrankerson, I do think just seeing it in the theater is, um, yeah, I would say seeing it in the theater. Oh, don't see it opening night, but wait a few weeks and see what the buzz is about. That's like a dollar theater. Then. Be, is that a dollar theater? That'd be like a dollar theater rating, yeah. Like a, how about like the two dollar Pasadena Academy Theater? There you go. Okay. <laughs> I would give it a dollar theater rating as well. But uh, cool. All right. So that's uh, that's our our thoughts on Hitchcock. Liz, where can people find more of your work? Hey, they can watch me on Just Seen It every Saturday at six p.m. on PBS KOCE, or they can go to www.justseenit.com. Or they um, can go to Liz, M-A-N-A-S-H-I-L dot com and check out all about my movie that I'm doing. All about that movie. All right. <laughs> uh, great. Cool. Uh, thank you, Liz, for uh, joining me to talk about Hitchcock. Yay. And now we'll go back to myself and Abe narrating this podcast. Okay. All right. Well, let me know if you need anything else. So, Abe. Yes, Aaron? 
there's a lot there's a lot of a lot of recordings we've done this week on this week's episode, which is very ambitious, I think. Almost not quite like, not quite like forty not, hours. Yeah. Not quite as ambitious as our, as our step up commentary, which you were unfortunately not a part of. It's not but it it's an intriguing episode and why not, you know, probably end the episode with our with my thoughts as well as Jordan Grout's thoughts on Red Dawn. Quite possibly the best Thanksgiving opening movie ever. People will soon find out our thoughts on Red Dawn. <laughs> I can't wait to hear it. Alright, so here I am with Jordan Grout. Finally. Finally. Woo. Sorry, damn Woo. dirty blog, Jordan Grout, and resident Woo. shopper of things that don't deserve their money, Jordan Grout. Uh, 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 we're going to be talking about Red Dawn. You take care of your brother, you hear me? Go If you're seeing this broadcast, you are in a part of the country no longer controlled by the government of the United States. Boys, I love you both, but I want you to do what I would do. Kill this piece of... They messed with the wrong family. How did this happen? There's a new class of weapon. Everything went offline and never came back. They wipe us out, including U.S. Central Command. What am I supposed to do? I'm gonna fight. Anybody who wants to join is welcome to it. We'll hit them on our terms. We're the Wolverines, and we create chaos. We need to steal that weapon. It'd be the foothold we need and take our homes back. I can. Yes, you can. Relax. And squeeze. This is this is the this is the remake of the '80s, ter- the terrible '80s classic that is Red Dawn, which starred a host of people that I think were all in the Outsiders except for Charlie Sheen, where they made a better movie instead and, and after Red Dawn or before Red Dawn. I don't care enough. Anyway, this is the remake of Red Dawn. Yeah. This time, instead of Russians, North Koreans invade America, as plausible as that may seem, and it's up to it's up to Thor and Josh Peck and Peter Mullark from Hunger Games. Amongst, amongst other pretty faces to train themselves to become a guerrilla unit in order to take down the Koreans that have invaded their small, sleepy town of Spokane, Washington. So, as thrilling as that description may have sounded, oh. Jordan Grout, what did you think of Red Dawn? Jeez, it's the best action movie of the year. Skyfall, take a seat, because it's Red Dawn. Um I'm I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The movie sucks. Um, but you know, I was never bored by it. <laughs> Even though like it's so just like generic and paint by numbers, and it's forgettable because a lot of the scenes I feel are interchangeable. And because of that, like I, it's it's kind of fuzzy looking back on the movie. And I just saw like 48 hours ago. I'm still like struggling to remember bits and pieces. And I feel it's because so many scenes are interchangeable, and it's just just kind of falls flat. It's better than Taken 2. I'll give you that. I disagree. Right? I don't think it's better than really? Taken 2. Oh. I, I don't know. I can't... Neeson's, Neeson's confident enough in that movie for me to enjoy <laughs> Taken 2 more than Red Dawn. Red Dawn doesn't have a classic Liam Neeson telling his daughter to get out a grenade and take more with her and throw it into the crowd <laughs> scene. That, yeah, you know, it doesn't have any absurd scenes like that. I'll, say, but, I'll say this. It doesn't have absurdity to it to make it more entertaining. I wanted to see Red Dawn because, yes, I knew it'd probably be terrible, but I thought it'd be at least entertainingly terrible. And I didn't get that. I didn't have fun watching this movie. 
I have fun. I, I, I have fun in retrospect talking about how terrible it is. But while watching this movie, it was just making me angry. See, no, yeah, I, I never felt that way. But Taken Two, I was bored. Like, okay, there are scenes of like absurdity, like the grenades and and just the, about football. the the drive soundtrack. But um, like this movie, yeah, there's no absurdity. But I was never bored. I was I was always giggling at something stupid or or some weird action sequence that was going on. The many Chris Chris Hemsworth speeches that he gives. Okay, so uh, here's this. What, amazing. What if this movie just, like, it just did, like, if it was, like, all-out Team America, where it's just mocking the, like, the movie that it is because of how ridiculous it is, like, if, because they have, like, that five-minute montage sequence, and where... Which one? The yeah, I'm sorry, they have the first five-minute montage sequence where Chris Hemsworth <laughs> trains these very pretty young people that are all tiny and small <laughs> to be better and more capable in action than North Korean soldiers that have invaded America. <laughs> it has a it has a five-minute montage dedicated to, like, Chris Hemsworth teaching somebody how to, like, trip you from behind and, like... <laughs> and if, like, it, if it was set to the Team America music of We Need a Montage, like, maybe that would be amazing. Then I love this movie. That'd be that'd be four stars right there. Like you're, and you're like you tied strings to their arms with so like little puppets walking around. Like you know, like if <laughs> these things in it, it could have made it better. Where if you know Connor, if if you swapped roles, if you swapped Connor Cruz and Chris Hemsworth, A plus, A plus. For <laughs> <laughs> but but it didn't have that. It took itself so seriously. Sorry. Yeah. It took itself so seriously that it's just it wasn't fun for me. It it didn't get to that. It didn't get to that juicy spot of me, like, enjoying how bad it was. Sure, I was, like, snickering to myself in certain aspects just because of how ludicrous things were. But it wasn't nearly as, like, bad, funny as it could have been, I guess. Compared to something like, compared to which we disagree on, compared to Taken 2, which I did think was, like, hilariously bad. But I I enjoyed, I actually, you know, I enjoyed the action in this movie. Like, it's it's stupid, but... Did you? Did you? I, I, I thought it was, okay, it was... Better than I thought. It wasn't great, but it was better than I expected. And because of that, yeah, you know, I kind of enjoyed it. Like the scene when, um, when, when they have to go into the building to, to retrieve, um, oh, the video game scene where they had to, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, 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 the third yeah, person yeah. shooter scene where they had to, they had a clear <laughs> objective and there were several <laughs> levels and they had to proceed up them and fight the boss. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so stupid, but it's better than what, what I was expecting. I'll say that scene, so that scene starts out. Back. That scene starts out well, right? I think because like you have like Chris Hemsworth, like you got to jump, so they jump across the gap, and it's like it's kind of fun and stuff. But then you get to like you get to what mostly happens in this movie, where you have these tightly edited action sequences. It really follows the Bourne logic, and which is fitting because Dan Bradley, the director, has he's been like a, he's a stunt, stunt coordinator, stunt coordinator right? and director on yeah. like like over a hundred movies, including the Bourne, some of the Bourne films, I believe, and mm-hmm. like so. At the same time, he doesn't seem to handle that touch. Pro- like, there's a, there's a, there's like a fight between Chris Hemsworth and another character, which is shot so close. It's so tightly shot. It's just it, it's the kind of thing that bothers me. It doesn't. It didn't yeah. Well. But okay, this film it was supposed to come out in like 1999, right? <laughs> it was supposed to come. It was it was filmed three years ago. Okay. It was made before the, the same with Cabin in the Woods. It was made before it was made before the MGM bankruptcy, and then it got put on the shelf. And then obviously, yeah, and um, I mean, because you know you have a film like Bond, it's not like this movie's going to get as much attention. So like Bond comes out, then Cabin or Cabin in the Woods comes out, that was obviously a success. And then Cabin in the Woods comes out. I think I've explained this in one of the other recordings that we've yeah. done. Okay, <laughs> I, I I know I said 1999, um, but I meant 2009. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I was like, are you, I thought you're just being you're just being hilariously over dramatizing something, but okay. 
that year would have been like Chris Hemsworth overload with like Cabin in the Woods, Red Dawn, Star Trek, and um. If people recognize it from Star Trek so easily, they'd be like, "Oh, it's, Kat, it's, 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 it's Kirk's father." That, that the one movie he was in, uh, the the Perfect Getaway, right? Yeah, he's in that. Yeah. I realized that watching the movie, I was like, "Holy crap!" He would have been like the Jude Law of two thousand nine. <laughs> I feel like he. I mean, I'm happier now that he's come. He he did this. This movie comes out after he's Thor, after he's proven himself in other. Because I feel like he just would have went nowhere if they. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Oh yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, he probably would have gone nowhere. <laughs> but he he's good in the role, like handling all like the horrible, horrible dialogue. He he delivers delivers it better than I feel most actors of his age would be able to do. Yeah, I mean, he he does, and, like, I think I've, again, I've explained this on one of the other recordings, but Hemsworth, he does have a, he got this role based on his dailies in Cabin in the Woods, and you have that one scene in Cabin in the Woods where he's given that big macho speech about he's going to come back here with guns and helicopters and tanks, <laughs> which is which is basically, like, the funniest scene in that movie. Yeah. And so, like, he got, and, that, and like, it's almost like he's channeling that same character, except he's still playing up the irony of his statements while the movie is taking them deadly serious. And mm-hmm. like so, I would say that Chris Hemsworth walks away with dignity in this movie. Like, no, not, oh, definitely not. But no, I'm saying, I'm saying he. I think he he comes across better than everyone else in the film, with the exception of maybe Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who shows up for like five minutes. It's like, hey guys, I'm the pro here. I, here's where's yeah, the, the pain. Very end of the movie. Yeah, the very end of the movie. And then, and but so yeah, I think Hemsworth as the lead. He does a decent job with what he's given, even though things that he's given and do are ludicrous in many cases. Certainly better than Josh Peck, whose role is the little brother, who who I assume was adopted, because there's no way that he and Chris Hemsworth are <laughs> brothers. And every scene he walks in, he has his hoodie on, it looks like he's about to freestyle rap with somebody. <laughs> like, yeah, who 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 ends the movie with this, hor- this horrific speech where, like, I don't even, I don't know who thought he had charisma enough to be, like, the character <laughs> he's supposed to be in this movie, but... It's it's God this movie and then the um who the the Hunger Games guy uh, yeah jo- uh, Josh Hutcherson yeah he he was you know okay it's good it's a good thing that he's attached himself to several other franchises since that movie came out yeah 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 and, and it's a good thing uh, Adrian Palicki has that Wonder Woman show under her belt right because <laughs> <laughs> she was terrible in this movie yeah the women in this movie. All no, running around with, with their hair not even tied back. They're just running around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's... Yeah, Dean Morgan shows up, and that is, like, a breath of fresh air in this movie when he finally shows up. Wait, hold on, because we, we skipped over Hutcherson's amazing scene where he – well, he has two amazing scenes, one of which will lead to my discussion of Connor Cruz. But the first one is when he uh-huh. raises his gun up in the air, and he's like, Wolverine! <laughs> who who did that in the first movie? Was that C. Thomas? I think Howell? it was either C. Thomas. I think it was C. I must have been C. Thomas. Yeah, it, or maybe it, maybe it was Charlie Sheen. I I think it was C. Thomas Howell. I think I'm pretty sure it was C. Thomas Howell actually. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the Amazing Spider-Man C. Thomas Howell. But um, <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Imagine if Hutcherson would have been Spider-Man. That would have been amazing. Because he auditioned. I think he auditioned for Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been great if he would have been Spider-Man. If it was, oh. he'd really, it'd be a PG Spider-Man or something. <laughs> Whew. Imagine that. No, he, I'm, not, I'm gonna stop doing that. But um, getting back to okay, his other scene. So Connor Cruz in this movie, or as I like to say, Tom Cruise's adopted black son. 
which a, a <laughs> phrase that I don't get to say enough in the world, really. Uh, Tom Cruise adopted black accent, Connor Cruise in this movie. Now, I don't think I can act at all, but I feel like I probably could have stepped in and did a better job than Connor Cruise in this movie. <laughs> he, there was one thing he said, like one line delivery. I forgot what it was, and I wish I would have written it down. And it, like, I'm, no one stepped in and was like, can you tell him what this line means? Because he obviously has no idea what he just said. <laughs> Um, and I forgot. Ah, oh, I'm, I'm going to remember it in like an hour. All right. Well, he has he has a scene with Josh Hutcherson where the where the product placement comes heavily in hand here, where <laughs> where they 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 hide out in the subway and then everybody's in the subway they're like oh oh, oh we, uh, and so then they like jump on the counter and they're like fill this bag with bread and they get all this subway food and they fill up like a bucket of soda and then they cut to the next scene and it's like all of them they've all devoured the subway food. It's like wow. That was a great meal we had, guys. It's like, what, what movie am I watching right now? This is ridiculous. Oh, okay. okay. Well, I mean, they, they couldn't cut anything out because it was short already. That's the best thing about the movie. It's like only an hour and 30 minutes. Because it had to set up Red Dot 2. That's what it seemed like at the end. Red Dot 2 is still done. And, um, yeah. So, so, okay. So this movie also, among the things that happened during the course of its production, it had to change the Chinese to North Koreans, and it's very noticeable with this film. You get, Love it. You know, like, you wouldn't think you'd be able to notice, like, redubbing of a foreign language so easily, but oh, this movie makes it very apparent that the Koreans, quotation fingers, are probably speaking Chinese. <laughs> or Mandarin, I'm sorry, Kansas, whichever. Like, it, it's... It, yeah. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> Which, it's, and I, um, I'm willing to like put my, I'm willing to like put my guard down. I'm willing to like take, a, like step in and put, put away my, you know, hold my suspension of disbelief here. But there's no plausible way that North Koreans, with the help of Russians, we are informed very later in the film, are able to take over America. Right? This doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it's. It's not even said, like, it kind of gives an opening sequence where you're, like, supposed to believe that, oh, man, things aren't good. But, like, there's no way in whatever universe this movie's presenting that the North Koreans were able to take – and let alone, we don't get to see anything in this movie. All we know is that Washington's taken over, and we get a few lines of dialogue about other things that are going on. But there's, right. like, there's, there's oh, nothing exactly. – no, nothing's yeah. told to us about what's going on in the, in the movie. There's no frame of reference here. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really bad. Yeah, you you're right about the dubbing. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> that 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 threw me off all the time. Like every scene. But the villain was decent. You know, the the, the main bad guy. I, I thought it was entertaining. Yeah, the, I, the, the the main bad guy from Die Another Day in the first <laughs> 10 minutes of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, in terms of he needs to be one-dimensionally evil. Like, yeah, sure, he's, he was amazing at that role. I'm just trying to pull out good things about the movie. I, there's uh, not many. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, there, there aren't. There aren't. Um, and, oh, who, who is, um, you know, I hate that actor that um, uh, plays a dad who's killed at the beginning. He was in Dark Knight Rises. He's, he's like poor man's uh, Chris Cooper. Yeah, Brett Cullen. He's the father in uh, our favorite movie, Ghost Rider. Yeah, ugh, I can't stand him. He does like, come so, up as like when you can't get Chris Cooper, you get Brett Cullen. Yeah, yeah. He's like Chris and Cooper's stunt double. <laughs> I, I hated him in Ghost Rider. Hated him in Dark Knight. Hate him in this. Everything I see him in, he he just irritates me. I hate his acting. Boy, get to the cabin. <laughs> hated him in this. Um, but okay, something good about the movie. There it comes. Jeffrey D. Morgan. Well, you're going back to Jeffrey D. Morgan? 
<laughs> well, well, no. Is is there something else that? You, I mean, no. I mean, we just talked about it already, and I think the what's the extent of his role that's good? He shows up and has authority in his voice. Like, what did he do that was so good in this movie? But let's talk about the scene in the woods when they meet each other. That is so ridiculous. Like, what he says something like, um, like, oh, we're we're trying to find like all 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 the kids and whatnot, and then they all just like. For no reason, they all lower their guns. <laughs> and it's like, would you really lower your guns in, like, a, a, an occupied area at that moment? Well, they're not dressed like Call of Duty 4, Modern Warfare North Korea in their in their bland uniforms. So, obviously, they're those kids you can trust and those random Marines that show up looking for the Wolverines you can trust as well. <laughs> How did the how did the Wolverines how did the word get out that the Wolverines were were like hitting it hard in Spokane that like they're coming from Camp Pendleton we're like who would they hear this from like who told who sent the who sent the message across the down the coast that was like guess what guys Spokane Washington's doing a pretty good job here you better go seek out the Wolverines <laughs> it's just like in Return of the King when they're lighting the yeah they're, I, yeah I didn't see the torch <laughs> the torches of Gondor scene didn't have it red dawn for me so no. you just didn't see it <laughs> apparently. Or they did like the tin can with the string. Like, oh, that must have been it. Never mind. You got me. Yeah. Well, right. They must. They must have pulled out the. They pulled. They pulled out the uh, the Morse code machines. The yeah. last scene in Independence Day. They pulled those out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, at least this movie wasn't in 3D. I think that's that's the moral we got from this. Was it in D box? Would you watch this in D box? I no. <laughs> I'd watch this in no box. <laughs> Oh, what if there's a Best Buy steelbook case for it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't. No, if it, even if it was sold with copies of uh, Drake, <laughs> the Drake and Josh seasons on Nick from Nickelodeon, I would not buy the uh, the blue on this one. Let's get. I'm gonna say forget about this film. That's my rating on this movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a horrible thing. And, okay, I didn't mention the one thing that really kind of angered me actually because the movie's. In the year that we've had Red Tails and Act of Valor, let alone also Total Recall, which I used to think was the most unnecessary movie of the year, Red Dawn's taken over as the most unnecessary <laughs> movie of the year. But um, where we had like, these other movies, you know, that they don't necessarily – well, Act of Valor more, but there's that jingo- jingoistic notion of, like, America, yeah, this movie mm-hmm. – it comes out in Thanksgiving weekend, and it's bloodless, so it's rated PG-13. And like, why are we supposed to see this? Like, what are we getting out of this movie? Where is the message to take? What is? What are we taking away besides, hey, it's cool to like train yourself at a young age and kill people because there's no blood that comes from that. So take your family and go see Red Dog. It's rated PG-13. Like, I don't, I, I hate that. I hate that about this movie. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm there with you. Yeah. It just make it makes me it makes me that's what made me angry about this movie. Like I was fine with just not liking it, but that made me angry when I started thinking about why does this movie exist? Like it has no relevance at all in culture. Like at least the original Red Dawn comes out like during the late Cold War. There's like it's not necessarily plausible, but there's a fear there involving Russians invading America. No one's worried about North Korea coming in and invading America. <laughs> <laughs> that's not something that's going to happen. There's no cultural relevance about that, aside from them being the bad guys of the world at this moment. Like, at least if they if they even if they had the guts to stick with their China guns, like that would have meant something, maybe. But no, that means nothing to be having North Korea here, and it just feels kind of just 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 makes me hate the movie as opposed to just recognizing it as bad. 
Well, the best thing about the movie is that, like, in a month, no one's going to even remember it. There you go. Thank you. Well, it'll be a Blu-ray in a month. So. Yeah. <laughs> like, nobody will buy it. So, 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 so like, a month and a half from now, then nobody will remember this movie. And come January, you'll find it in the bargain bin at Kmart. And then you can get it for 99 cents on Black Friday next year on Amazon. Yeah, exactly. Preparation for the direct DVD sequel, still starring Drake Josh, Jake Josh Drake, Josh Peck, whatever. <laughs> oh, whatever that asshole's name. <laughs> the whack, the whackness, the whack. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I, uh, I uh, yeah, as okay, I said that I never found it boring, but I would never recommend it to someone. If someone's like, hey, give me a cheesy action film. No. I never say, yeah, Red Dawn. Lockout. Lockout's an amazing cheesy action film. Space Shield, yeah. I'd, put, I'd watch that in a second yeah. if that was given the opportunity. If I was given the opportunity between that and Red Dawn, Lockout would win hands down. Space Shield. Oh, Lockout would have been over a whole bunch oh, of things. It would have over a lot of things. It would have overtaken two, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I can't believe that Lockout wasn't on sale during Black Friday. I was really upset about that. I couldn't get Space Shield for like $5. That would have snapped that up in an instant, but no. It was, uh, it was at Best Buy. It wasn't, it wasn't for cheap. It was like twelve ninety nine. That's still, I mean, come on. This would be there for like three dollars. Why, why am I gonna pay? <laughs> I, I could have got like Lord of the Rings for three dollars. Like, like <laughs> I already have Lord of the Rings. I want to get Space Shield. Why can't I just do that? Like, but it's on. It's on Netflix. Watch instant. So. Oh, that's right. For the time being, I don't yeah. need to own it. But I, well, I don't know if it's the unrated version on Netflix. Watch instant though. That's the key. That's yeah, no, that's my, that's my one main issue with Red, with uh, with uh, with Space Jail that it felt like it's easily going to be a film more enjoyable in its R-rated cut opposed to the PG-13 version. Yeah. Although the, I, I hope the motorcycle scene is always the same though. Oh, <laughs> oh, that scene needs to win an Oscar. Like just that scene. I don't know for what category. That the film needs an Oscar for that scene. It needs several. Um, but would you watch the motorcycle scene for an hour and a half as opposed to watching Red Dawn? Yes. <laughs> yes, so would I. I, I yeah, would. I, I, yeah. Well, it'd be like an interesting previs experiment. <laughs> it's like watching the uh, working print of uh, Blade Runner. Exactly, or Wolverine. Which I think was the theatrical one. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the work print, theatrical cut. Yeah. You can't tell the difference. All right, so, yeah. yeah, Red Dawn, obviously, I think the message to take away is here is always wash your hands after going to the bathroom. <laughs> so, thank you, Jordan. Well, where can people find more? Thank you. Where can, where can people find more of your work? Oh, you can go to at uh, Amsterdam Chap on Twitter. You can go to Jordan Grout on Facebook. You can go to Damn Dirty Blog at blogspot.com, which has not been updated for months. Well, you should really lay down the law and update your update that blog. I know. It's been a busy few months. Come January, I'm gonna get get on it. So, I so I apologize if you go to it. And you're like, what the hell is this crap? Yeah. First, first I get nothing from the VHS diaries of Alan Aguilera, and now I got nothing from Damn Dirty Blog. What's going on? <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you, Jordan. Oh, thank you for thank talking you. Red Dawn with me. I'm glad I was uh, able to vent some frustrations about the movie. It's, it's been a pleasure. It, it's always a pleasure to hear you vent about Red Dawn. Great, thank you. And now back to myself and Abe. Okay, so that that honestly that was really long. That was a long. Twice. <laughs> that was that was like Nathan's like twelve inch hot dog long. We tried to the, that example exactly. We tried to outdo our Lincoln episode apparently with this podcast. <laughs> but um, I, I hope everyone that stuck around through the whole thing did enjoy it. And um, you know that that was a special episode. I I, I think we'll for when we get to Christmas and ho- you know Hanukkah time, both of those. Um, 
thing, something I, you know what, that's something I forgot to mention in the Rise of the Guardians review. It's really like, you know, sorry, Jewish kids, this movie isn't for you. That's kind of the vibe you get from watching that movie. That, <laughs> well, who's the hero in, in your... Uh, does it re- matter? There's, there's no Hanukkah representation at all, but we get the freaking Tooth Fairy? Like, what is... <laughs> <laughs> the, the dynamic dreidel? I don't know. There could be any number of things that you could just do to acknowledge the fact that Hanukkah exists. Meanwhile, I need Menorah. Meanwhile, you have one kid that's dependent on his his belief in Santa Claus in order to save the world. So you know, take it as you will. That's (laughs) anyway. (laughs) Ending this podcast angrily. Apparently, that is going to do it for this episode of Out Now with Aaron and Abe. You can find more of my work on my personal blog, thecodeazeek.com, where you can find all my written movie reviews, as well as at whysablu.com. And I'm going to plug one specific thing at whysablu, where I generally do Blu-ray reviews. I wrote a review for The Walking Dead game. There is a video game based on the series The Walking Dead, and it's a game I really, really enjoy. And I wrote a review about that, which I'll link in the show notes probably. But recommend Walking Dead game. Cool. You can also find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Aaron's PS3. Uh, you can find more fun stuff at walrusmoothstufflikespot.com and twitter.com slash walrusmooths. Yeah. Um, let's see. You can also find all the other episodes of Out Now with Aaron and Abe on iTunes on hhwlod.com. You can make sure to check out the other shows there as well, which feature Legion of Dudes, The Walking Dead TV Podcast, and other fun shows about comics and games and stuff. Outnow.podomatic.com. Most of our newest episodes are there. And some exclusives. Uh, YouTube page. And if you want to listen to uh, each one of these segments just individually, uh, which I'll probably, I'm probably going to be splitting up, you can go to our YouTube page at youtube.com slash outnowpodcast. And you can just listen to Aaron and Mark Johnson, myself, Aaron, Mark Hoven, and Adam, or just Maxwell and Dad, myself and Aaron, and maybe even just Jordan and Aaron by himself. Just all separate segments. By this logic, because this this the, the YouTube page is for just the main review segment of our episodes, but by this logic, you're suggesting that people that have listened to all of this episode would go back just to listen to individual segments of the episode. You know, Mark Johnson does have a dreamy voice, right? Right? <laughs> you got me there. So you can also out now. You can, you can also email us at outnowpodcast at gmail dot com. Send us any questions our way, your thoughts on the life of Pi, because we haven't reviewed that movie enough already. Or you know, follow us on facebook dot com slash outnowpodcast or twitter dot com slash outnow underscore podcast. You can like and follow those pages and get all the updates and what have you there. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it for this extended holiday hodgepodge episode. So until next time, so long and goodbye. I should actually mention. Hold on. <laughs> After we okay. the show. holding next week's next week's show, we probably will be talking about killing them softly. This is the Brad Pitt film with uh, James Gandolfini, James Gandolfini, Richard Jenkins, and Ray Liotta. That is probably the, that is the movie that we'll be reviewing for next week's show. So yeah, cool. Once again, until next time, so long and adios. Mm-hmm.